Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. For the newsletter this week, I entitled it Time Travelers of the Moedim. And, you know, the, there's the principle there that on Shabbat and then on the feast days that basically you're living outside of time. Um, those particular days really aren't counted against the number of your days because you've stepped into eternity when you celebrate the feast. And by feast, of course, we mean the, the seven Moedim of Israel, Passover, Unleavened bread, first fruits of the barley, first fruits of the wheat, or Shavuot, Pentecost. Um, then moving over into the seventh month or the fall of the year. Of course, we celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, uh, the Day of Coverings, also known as the Day of Atonements, Yom HaKippurim, and then Sukkot. And so even though we're we've put Sukkot in the rearview mirror, at least in the natural realm, we really haven't put Sukkot in the mirror in the spiritual realms, because uh, remember, we stepped into clouds of glory, right? And so just kind of looking at some of the, the ways that we've looked at the Song of Songs over the, the past several months, especially as we went, or went into chapter three of the Song of Songs, it became obvious to us pretty quickly that chapter three of Song of Songs is very heavily prophesying, not just, again, of time past when Israel was wandering around in the wilderness, but it's prophesying of Israel in the future when Israel will be wandering around in the wilderness. And that's what we're doing. We're wandering around in the wilderness, except our wilderness is a little bit different than the one we read about in Exodus. Uh, our wilderness is the wilderness of the peoples. It's the wilderness uh, where we have been scattered. And so we've been working with those principles over the last few weeks. And of course, you know, the question was, as we were going through chapter three, who is this coming up from the wilderness? Who is this? And from all the cues and all the clues, it's pretty obvious, again, that it's Israel coming up from the wilderness, but yet in chapter three of the Song of Songs, we can see that there's been a huge transformation in the Israelites. And so if there was a transformation in the generation of the Israelites that crossed over Jordan with Joshua, then it seems that the pattern for us to look for is for Israelites, whether by birth or whether by faith, children of Abraham, that there's also been a transformation in them as they have traveled through their wilderness, their wilderness being this wilderness of the nations. And we'll go through that scripture again. So I hope your Sukkot was good. Understanding that as we, we walked in the wilderness, that we're walking in a place that the rabbis call clouds of glory or Sukkot of glory. So in that sense, you know, especially if we've come to faith in Messiah Yeshua, he is going to lead us out into the wilderness to test us wherever we are in the nations. And it may not always feel like it, 
it might feel more like we're being tested, tried, pressed, measured, <laughs> sieved, you know, sifted. All sorts of things might be going on out here in the wilderness, but it, it doesn't that often feel like clouds of glory or Sukkot of glory? And of course, that, that name comes in because when they left Ramses, as they came out of Egypt, they stopped at Sukkot. And it was, it was understood at that point, they entered into Sukkot of glory. They started walking in the clouds. Well, the, the lesson there again is they weren't really behaving at all times as though they were walking in the clouds. And so I doubt that we at all times behave as though we're walking in the cloud. We forget where we are and we forget under whom's protection we have been uh, invited into for these wonderful tests that <laughs> he rolls out for us. Um, now, some of these tests, I don't think we can blame them on the Holy One. I think we have to blame them just sometimes we do dumb things. And sometimes we're just experiencing the consequences of doing things that just aren't really wise and poor choices, those sorts of things. So we don't want to blame those on him. And we certainly don't want to give the devil credit for it, right? It's just um, these are self-lessons self-teaching lessons. But there are definitely some lessons he takes us out in the wilderness to learn. So it doesn't really matter if you're a beginner in walking in the feasts or if you are seasoned in the seasons of the feast. You're, you're still in a place, uh, yes, of safety. You are 100% secure in the hand of Yeshua. He says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. But you also have to understand that even while you're in that little hand of protection, you're also going to experience testing, protection while you're being tested. So you'll be smiling out of one side of your mouth and frowning out of the other on some days. So whether you went to Jerusalem literally, uh, I wish you could have all been with us. It would have been wonderful. But what if you just, you know, had a Sukkot? What if you know, you have an apartment and you just, you know, kind of spent time out on your balcony, tried to decorate your balcony. Or what if you went camping with your friends and you set up a temporary camp, a temporary dwelling together? What if you built a sukkah in your backyard? You still went to Jerusalem, remember, because you're stepping outside of time. And if you're stepping outside of time, in a sense, you're also stepping outside of space. So yes, the ideal is to go to Jerusalem for the feasts. But if that's not possible, the next best thing is to celebrate Sukkot wherever you are, because he's going to honor that faithfulness. And eventually he is going to assist you in planting your feet in the holy city. So until then, yes, you need to have your, your Jerusalem jar. If you don't have a Jerusalem jar and you've never been to Jerusalem, you should have it. Well, it might take several jars if you want to go to Jerusalem. You might need a Jerusalem jar and you might need a, you know, United or Delta or American jar too, because the flight is about as expensive as, well, more expensive actually, than uh, just literally keeping the feast in Jerusalem. Now, of course, if you go shopping, that may not be true, but you should save. You know, it's it's a mitzvah to go to Jerusalem for the feasts. And uh, so put that on your list. Get your Jerusalem jar going. It's as easy sometimes as just not going and getting that, that gourmet coffee cup on the way to work. It would be surprised how much we send, spend on gourmet coffee cups that 
would add up eventually to a pretty decent seat on a flight to Israel for the feasts. But yes, next year in Jerusalem, we always want to say that whether it's Pesach, whether it's Sukkot, next year in Jerusalem, that's always the goal. But again, if you entered into Sukkot wherever you were, you made that space of time, you took that time off from work, you honored the word, then yeah, you were there too. Yeah. And and again, it goes back to we're in the wilderness of the peoples. So when Israel was in the wilderness, they couldn't put their feet in the holy city, but they could rehearse it for 40 years. And that's exactly what they did. They rehearsed it. And of course, the Mishkan or the tabernacle, that was the focal point of their worship. Uh, It represented the not just the divine presence in the, the tabernacle itself, but it the, the you know when they looked and they could see the Mishkan sitting among the camp, that's when they could realize that no matter how I feel today, because some days I don't feel like God's that near, but no matter how I feel today, when I look at that Mishkan, it reminds me that his presence abides among us as people. And so we want to remember that, that as we are encamping in this wilderness, as we are traveling around this wilderness, That's the question. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? It's the children of Israel. They're going to emerge from the wilderness. And they, you know, we've been staging, we've been rehearsing, we've been preparing to cross the Jordan and to enter into the holy city. So let's let's pick up there. You know, who is this coming up from the wilderness? The next two verses are going to be Song of Songs, uh, chapter three, verses seven and eight. And here's the answer. So who is this? It's the Mishkan coming up from the wilderness. It's the people of Israel represented by the Mishkan coming up from the wilderness. So it says, behold, it is the traveling couch. Some of your versions might say bed. Some might say sedan. Uh, I never really thought about where the word sedan came from until I read through that with that particular translation. Uh, So I doubt if he was driving, you know. a Ford sedan, but at least now I understand the word. Um, it's a it's a traveling compartment, all right? If we're going to do some time travel, how are we going to time travel? Not in a Ford sedan. <laughs> uh, definitely not in a Ford, maybe in a Chevy. I don't know. Um, I don't think Ford would have ever built a sedan for traveling in the wilderness to the holy city. But it says it's the traveling couch of Solomon. 60 warriors around it of the warriors of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. All right, so we've unpacked quite a bit of this already in our lessons. We understand that, of course, this traveling couch uh, of Solomon it represents the Mishkan itself, and which represents the children of Israel. So the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, we kind of established this is who it is coming up from the wilderness. However, even with those 12 tribes of Israel coming up from the wilderness, they've been preparing, rehearsing, getting ready, dwelling in clouds of glory. And that's always the question at Sukkot. Remember, there's the seven shepherds or the seven Ushpizin who figuratively, not literally, but well, in our case, <laughs> we had a visit from one of the Ushpizin in, in Israel, but it's a figurative uh, idea that 
these seven shepherds of Israel will come to your sukkah and they will inquire of you, how well have you dwelled in Sukkot of glory over this past year? You might be, you know, literally building the sukkah during the feast of Sukkot and, and taking your meals in there and celebrating in there. But all year long, you are dwelling in Sukkot of glory if you are a child of Israel, if you are a child of Abraham and you've joined yourself to Israel. And so there's 60 special people, 60 warriors around these 12 tribes. And from the text, we can see that they're very skilled in war. They have a sword and they're guiding against the terrors of the night. And as we've studied before, we saw that the night represents the times of exile when Israel is not permitted to live in the land and to freely celebrate the feasts, to freely operate in their covenant with the majority also settled in that land to celebrate. You still have quite a a population of Israel that's not yet settled in the land. So in that sense, it's not maybe completely dark right now, but we can sense the twilight. We can sense that the sun is rising because there are so many who are in the land keeping the feasts. So the the 60 special people or whoever they represent, these are those who are expert enough with the sword, expert in war, that they are protecting the children of Israel against the terrors of the exile, against the terrors of being separated from the land that was promised to them by inheritance. They are protectors. And and being the, the wielders of the sword, we know that the sword represents the word. So there's Israelites and then there's Israelites. And there are Israelites, if we look at the lulav and what is represented by the the branches, and of course, by the etrog. As you look at some of the traditions concerning each of those branches, they're they're not all, you know, you have some who aren't that committed. But if you bundle them together, together they are strong. And then you give them the etrog, you you put the heart in them. And so those who are a little better at at some things, uh, those who do have a heart for the word, uh, they can actually boost the service. Together, they can do what individually they struggle to do. And so what helps bind this together is going to be these these warriors, those expert in the sword, expert in the word. And so where there might be people out there who are lacking in their study of the word, who might be lacking a little bit in their practice of the word, need a little more motivation, uh, need a little more fire underneath them, that there are people out there who are, they need that assistance until they grow in the word. They need that assistance until they they learn. Because without the learning, sometimes, sometimes we're just ignorant. It's, it's not that we're rebellious. We're just ignorant. We don't know better. And so having those students of the word who can guide us through there as we learn and as we grow, that's an asset as we go through the wilderness. And so one of the things, one of the the substances that is used in scripture uh, to describe, well, we'll see what it describes, but the substance is iron, iron. And so, whereas, you know, speaking of, you know, walking with a group of people, 
you can see the range. I mean, if you just look at arguments that arise over the scripture, you can see that there is a range of people and the way that they experience the word or the way that they perceive the word or the way that they incorporate the word. Some people, they perceive the the Torah as being very bendable. (laughs) They see it as being very flexible. In terms of its significance in our lives, it is. It finds something to say to every single one of us and every single generation. In that sense, yes, it's flexible. But is it flexible in the sense that, well, it's up to you whether you decide to obey or not? Well, it is up to you, up to a point, but it really is made of iron. It's unbendable in the sense that the commandment is there to be obeyed. It's not a buffet. It's iron. The commandments do not bend in that sense. And this offers us a safety, right? And this is why the children of Israel in the wilderness, they needed to learn the word from Moses because he was was setting foundations. He was setting for them structures of iron to lean upon. They would always know what the mitzvah said. They would always know what the word said as they entered into the land. Because the land, the, the land demands that we keep the mitzvot. And if we don't keep the mitzvot, it spits us out. And so 40 years in the wilderness, they began to learn this quality of iron, the unchangeable word that yet somehow manages to speak to every generation. And in this iron, in the obedience to the word, they found safety. They found that when they when they tried to bend the word, when they tried to break the word, when they tried to ignore the word, then it was not safe for them. It wasn't a safe place. So they had to internalize. Remember, they they heard 10 commandments and they said, we will do and we will hear. Oh, we won't worship idols. No, no, we won't do that. Oh, we won't break the Shabbat. No, no, we won't do that. We're not going to blaspheme. No, we're not going to do that. We won't complain. We won't gossip. You know, uh, We won't murder people with our words. We're not going to do any of that. And then the first time Moses turns around, yeah, they're worshiping idols. We had people who tried to break the Shabbat. We had people who dishonored authority. We had the the rebellion of Korah. You had um, Nadav and Avihu who rushed ahead of their father to perform the incense service. And so in each of these cases, you see that there was a pretty, speaking of iron bars, (laughs) there was definitely an iron bar in place that they ran into. In the wilderness, they needed to learn that the commandments are iron. You can't bend or break. If you want his divine presence among you, you can't bend or break. Because if it's important in the wilderness, he's saying, how much more important will it be when I restore you? to my land. And so these 60 warriors expert with the sword are going to be those who are inspirational. They're going to be those who recognize that no, the commandments don't break, but yes, they definitely provide structure for every single one of us in our lives. And you say, well, what what about the ones I haven't learned yet? Don't worry about the ones you haven't learned yet. You will. 40 years is a long time to wander around. <laughs> and if you can't, you know, manage the, all the commandments in 40 years, then there may be, you know, there might be a remedial class. I don't know. Uh, I think I keep being, being put in that remedial class, at least on certain ones. But he's he's very serious. 
about our learning his word and obeying it. And here's what it says in Psalm 149. The godly ones shall be jubilant and glory. They shall sing for joy on their beds. All right, this symbolism of being on your bed, you, you might have to go back you know, not just weeks, but months and our lessons on that about, uh, you know, the one who is seeking her beloved all night on her bed and she can't find him. And then, you know, it says that she gets up and she goes around the city. She meets the Sovevim or the night watchman. And no sooner does she meet the night watchman than she encounters her beloved, right? And, and the idea there is, well, you need to get up off your sick bed. It represented, a bed can represent a sick bed that you're not strong enough spiritually. It can represent, you know, the sleep of death. It can represent different things. You just kind of, you know, to know the context of it. But in this Psalm, it's talking about there's going to be godly ones who sing for joy on their beds. In other words, they're anticipating getting off the bed. They might realize that they've been spiritually asleep. They've been a little spiritually sick. There might even be those who have fallen asleep that Paul talks about that, you know, that we're not going to precede those who have fallen asleep when it comes to the resurrection. So, you know, the people of Adonai will arrive at a place, the psalmist says, where now they can sing for joy on their beds. If they have fallen asleep in death, they can still sing for joy because a resurrection is coming. The godly ones can sing for joy on their beds because a resurrection is coming, spiritual strength is coming. He says, the high praises of God shall be in their mouths and a two-edged sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and the punishment on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their dignitaries with shackles of iron to execute against them the judgment written. This is an honor for all his godly ones. All right. So, as we look back at our at our verse up here about these 60 mighty warriors, wielders of the sword, expert in war, these are like an honor guard. These are those who have, you know, been diligent in the study of the word, and they have become an honor guard for the nation, actually an honor guard even for the king. Because remember, it's the traveling couch of Solomon. It, it, they're like the honor guard for the divine presence. You say, well, you know, what's the... What's the reward in study? Well, number one, the reward in study is you get to know the heart of your king. But along with it, he is he is looking for applicants in his kingdom. And the applicants for a particular job in his kingdom, which is to rule and reign with him, they need particular skills. They need to be wielders of the sword of the word, expert in war. They need to have not fallen asleep during the night of exile. Instead, their hearing improved. Their hearing of the word improved in the night. And so they not only have these praises of God in their mouth, because remember, they're, they're jubilant. They, they see a time of arising from the sleep of death. And it says there's a two-edged sword in their hands. Again, the sword represents the word. And so it's with the word, uh, it, it, if you just read it, you know, with without that context, it sounds like something very bloody. But actually, what it's talking about is the institution of a, a peaceful kingdom on earth. 
Yes, it involves vengeance. Yes, it involves punishment on the peoples. But here's how it's done. He says to bind their kings with chains and their dignitaries with shackles of iron to execute against them the judgment written. So we know that there are judgments written, there are decrees made at the Feast of Trumpets, which also coincides with the resurrection of the dead. So when we're resurrected from the dead, simultaneously, the King of Kings will be making decrees. He will be recording judgments that will be executed. Now, remember, there's 10 days after the Feast of Trumpets until the Day of Atonements, Yom Kippur, and the decrees are not sealed until the closing of the gates at Yom Kippur, and then nothing happens. (laughs) However, once Sukkot begins, that's when it's understood that those decrees, those judgments, they are unsealed and handed off for execution, for good or for bad. I mean, there might be good things sealed up in those decrees too. And that's why I say you want your name inscribed and sealed in the book of life. So that's a good thing. It's it's not all, you know, horror and terror. Those decrees, as they come unsealed, we're going to get to read some good things about ourselves too, if we've been faithful to the Holy One. But there will be kings and dignitaries. There will be rulers of the earth who are going to have to be bound with chains and iron, shackles of iron. So that means as Yeshua is looking for these people mighty with the sword to rule and reign with him, to execute these judgments that were written at the Feast of Trumpets that were sealed at Yom Kippur, and then began to be executed upon the earth during the Feast of Sukkot, which is also, remember, known as the Feast of the Nations, the Feast of the Nations. So you can see how the, the symbolism, at least, of the Feast of the Nations, it helps you to understand these 60 mighty warriors. It's going to be very important for them to know the word because it's through this that they're going to judge, just like Yeshua has the two-edged sword that's that's coming out of his mouth. We have to know how to use that sword, the very same sword that he's using. We're not allowed to bend, break, pretzelize, or whatever the iron bars of the word. We have to execute the judgments just the way the word is written. And so, yes, it's an honor, but is this something that everyone attains to? I don't think so, because not are all equally committed either to learning the word or practicing the word. And it's it, he's going to have to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We can't really do that. I mean, we can judge fruit, but we don't really know someone's heart. You know, there might be someone who really doesn't know a lot about the word. They might not be that well educated. Maybe they didn't have great opportunities. They might have a disability, but what they know, they know. And they're practicing what they know. The father can see that heart. And that's what the word does. The word is so powerful. It goes beyond just what the instruction is. And it'll actually penetrate into a human heart to find out what is that human heart's relationship to this word. So we want to be very careful how we judge other people who maybe haven't had the opportunities. So during the kingdom, as the kingdom is being set up, Yeshua is going to dispatch those who are destined to rule and to reign with him. And the first thing that needs to be done is to bind the king's and the dignitaries of the earth, those who might be left. I I suspect there are 
may not be as many as we started with when tribulation began, but there will be those left. And you would think, well, aren't these the good rulers? Because they are the ones left. These are the ones who didn't go up against Israel and Jerusalem. These are the ones who didn't fight against King Messiah. Well, they they might be good, but it doesn't mean they're educated. It, It doesn't mean that they may not have some wrong ideas about the word. And so we're going to have to shackle them with iron. We're going to have to bind them now with the word itself. Because right now we're living in a world where people just make up new rules every day. Now this is the law. Now this is the law. Well, that's not the law anymore. Well, we're not going to enforce that law. It's changeable. Well, the word of Adonai is not changeable. His word endures forever. His mercy endures forever, but his word stands forever. And so these rulers of the nations that are left, they are going to have to shackle their laws to reflect these boundaries of iron, according to the word of Adonai. Remember, the Torah is going to go forth from Jerusalem. The word of the Lord is going to go forth from Zion. It's it's not going to be things that we make up every morning. It's going to be things that have stood through the ages. And so that's how you know we, we participate in this judgment, because the judgment written will be that the earth will have to obey the king of kings. They will have to acknowledge the creator of the universe. And so these who are learned in warfare, it's suggesting that they're learned in Torah because, you know, some people think the book of wars that's mentioned in Numbers 2114 is a completely separate book that's been lost to history. But in the, the tradition, it's seen as that's the Torah itself because it educates you in war all the way from Genesis to Deuteronomy. It, you know, it starts with the war in the garden. And then it's going to end with a view to the war to take back the the promised land, the inheritance, and to uproot the Canaanites. Anyone who is practicing idolatry and immorality and murderous behavior, those sorts of things. So yeah, the Torah is a book of war. And so we, we have to become familiar with these mitzvot of iron. And we have to see them a little bit differently than a rebel does. A rebel sees these commandments of iron and it just rubs him the wrong way. Or people have misconceptions about the word. They have misconceptions about truth because they didn't study. They didn't educate themselves. They didn't make a teacher for themselves uh, as it came to the word. And so I want to read to you some scriptures. I don't have slides for you today. Like I say, I'm, I'm still dragging a little bit. Appreciate your prayers for a little more energy. <laughs> but let's just review here. Re- Revelation 2.25, it says, Nevertheless, what you have, hold firmly till I come. The one who overcomes and the one who keeps my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are shattered, as I also have received authority from my father. All right, so the the human vessel is it's like you know a clay pot, and sometimes uh, we allow ourselves to be molded in ways that really don't fit uh, the Father's idea of who and what we should be. And so, if we have those misconceptions of the Word, then He is going to take His rod of iron, which is His Word, and He will shatter our misconceptions. 
And so having the authority to, to work with Yeshua in his kingdom, it's it's going to be a, a really important responsibility because if, if you're using the word, it's a strong, strong tool. It's a strong weapon of war and it will shatter things. And we have to be careful not to shatter things that shouldn't be shattered. And there's a time and a place for everything. But shattering misconceptions about the word, using those shackles of iron, that will be important because we're having to re-educate the earth. Revelation 12, 5, it says, she gave birth to a son, a male, who is going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So again, we see Yeshua who is going to rule with a rod of iron. He's going to rule with this inflexible word that yet it's a support it's kind of like, you know, if you were driving on a high mountain at night, what would you rather have, a guardrail or no guardrail? You want the guardrail. And those who love the word, those who love the Father, they don't see these mitzvot of iron as oppressive, as onerous. Instead, they see it as a guardrail. Like, oh, what a relief. Now I know where the guardrail is. I know where I'm safe. The rebel will simply resent the guardrail, and eventually the rebel is going to drive over the side of the mountain. It's that simple. Revelation 19.15 says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So there's two aspects here, and you can see how the sword and the rod of iron are fused right here. We know the sword is the word, and now he says, I'm going to rule them with a rod of iron. So again, there's going to be war and the word will win. But then how do you maintain once you have basically weeded out the wicked, you might still have a, a, a worldwide population who are a little bit ignorant of the word itself. And so he's going to have to rule them with this rod of iron. They're going to have to accept the commandments uh, instead of picking and choosing. They're going to have to learn a new way of, of respecting the boundaries of law. It's going to be divine law, not human law. It says, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And then in Leviticus 26, 19, he says, I will also break down your pride of power, and I will make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. So here again, the the sky being like iron when you're praying, you know, you look up and you don't want the sky to be iron. You would like to know that those prayers went through. But how do you perceive the commandments? Are you praying that that Adonai would just forget his word and bless you in, in spite of, you know, your your rebellion, your maliciousness, and, and you're, you know, dead set to break the ones you want to break. But then you expect to look up and you don't want the sky to be iron. Well, you're going to look up, he says, and you're going to realize the sky is iron. It stands in my commandments. They, my commandment stands forever. So I'm going to have to bring you down, and I'm going to have to rule you with iron until you see that it doesn't bend. That prevailing is a matter of overcoming. Overcoming is a matter of holding on to those unbendable commandments. And within those unbendable commandments or unbendable promises, that's the good side of it. If you will overcome, if you will stand firm, 
then every promise contained in those commandments of iron belongs to you. They're unbendable. That's how Jacob prevailed over Esau. He just didn't let go. He, I mean, it's not like they're doing jujitsu. He and the angel all night. No, he just held on to that which does not bend until the dawn broke. And when he prevailed by just hanging on, then prophetically it, it sprang forward in time. Talk about time travel. And now his descendants, through his inspiring prevailing until the end of the night, you know, when the angel says, the dawn's breaking, I have to go. And Jacob says, not until you bless me. <laughs> and so, like I say, with the iron comes the blessing. If we're willing to obey the commandments and stand firm, like Yeshua said, then we can inherit the blessing. And, you know, thousands of years later, his descendants, their night of exile among the nations will also break. Another thing to know about the rod is it's also a unit of measure. We call that a, a midah or measures or midot. When we were at a place in Jerusalem that, that sells women's clothes, uh, somebody needed help getting the right size. And I, I called the clerk over and I, I told her, I said, you know, she needs help. And, and I was trying to tell her in Hebrew, with the midah, she needs a measurement. She needs, a, she needs to find the right size. And so a midah is a measure. And that's what these this rod of iron is. It's a it's a way of measuring the commandments or measures. Do we measure up to these iron commandments? Because in the end, if we'll understand, they are not just there to destroy us. Instead, these commandments of iron are there to support us. You know, if if you were in a high-rise building right now, what would you like to know that that structure is made of? Would you like to know that that structure is made of a hard metal like steel or iron? Or would you like to know that you and that high-rise building, all the supports in that building um, were made out of balsa wood? Now you would like that. <laughs> Nobody would like that. The first big wind that came through, it would destroy the building. And that's basically what happens when we substitute our own commandments for the commandments of iron, the unbending commandments. And so we, have, we can have one of two relationships to the commandments. We can see them as being very restricting. We can see them as stifling. We can see them as opposed to grace. And if we understand them that way, then we've been definitely miseducated on the quality of grace and how it functions and what it's for. It's, it's not a blank check for any sin we choose to write in, but or we can have a different uh, re reaction. If we encounter the iron commandment, we can see it again, like it's that structure that is supporting a building. It's supporting the gathering, like the Mishkan, the tabernacle coming up out of the wilderness. Even though it was movable, it was strong. So you see it again, like it's like a temple, a house of prayer for all nations. When we look at the laws, the ordinances, the statutes, we even look at the stories. We can look at the prophecies found in the Torah. They're actually our support. They keep this house upright. They keep this house safe. And so, yes, it's inherent in that iron rod. There is grace there. That's the strength of the word. It is grace that he has given us these commandments to uphold us. What greater grace is there? So 
Hebrews 4.12, it says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, right? So sometimes we, you know, people come to us for advice, for counsel, and sometimes when they do that, they're not really being honest. They're not being honest with themselves. And so they certainly can't be honest with you if they're not being honest with themselves, if you find yourself in that situation, pretty much the best you can do, other than, of course, applying a lot of prayer, speak the word to them because that word itself will penetrate into their hearts and it will help them to know whether they are being stubborn, whether they're being rebellious, whether they are choosing not to see certain critical things in their situation, whether they're just posing and playing a game. It's the word that's going to be able to decide that. Sometimes we're not so good at it, but the word itself will. And if you can apply the word in that situation, then it's really not your role to judge what's going on in there. You simply apply the word, and then they're going to have to deal with, with whatever they find in their own hearts. But, you know, grace as being opposed to the commandment, that is a great deception. And Yeshua is going to demonstrate to all that his word has always been alive. It is alive and it will always be alive. In the gospels, he's constantly applying this unbendable iron. And this, when, as he even applies the unbendable iron, we see the grace in it. Now, every now and then he'll say something like, you better stop sinning or something. Words is going to happen to you. Stop it. But he was able to show them the grace in those commandments and how it could keep them safe if they would respect it. And so he's going to teach the nations with this living word. He's going to show them how to live in the commandment instead of die in it. And so, it, yes, it's sharp, it's powerful, but grace has kind of been, and not everybody, not everybody, but in, but in many streams, we can see that grace has been misunderstood and it's been used as permission to disrespect the word. It's been used as permission to sin, to transgress against the word, even to have a negative attitude toward the word that scripture never taught. And so if we're using grace as a defense against the word, we'd better be prepared for that very same word to judge us. We're going to be judged by it. And so we want to be careful that we've not misunderstood the role of grace, thinking that grace will somehow stand between us and our, and our willful disobedience to the word. But for some people, this iron rod of the judge, it's, it's a relief. We want to know what the Torah says. We want to know what the word says. It rejoices our hearts, even in the exile. We never wanted to use grace as an excuse. We wanted to use grace as what it was meant to be, a place where we fell short because we were human. And so there again, the, the inherent grace of the word, the word will keep us from so many things, so many sicknesses and sorrows it will keep us from because there's grace in the iron. But for those who have been, their hearts have not been right, you know, anybody can say they're saved. But imagine, you know, when this word goes in and judges their hearts and it, it reveals to them, you know what? You actually just used grace to reject the everlasting structure of the word. You just use grace 
to justify being a rebel. You just use grace to continue to do what you wanted to do. You didn't want to become a disciple of Yeshua. You just wanted to benefit from his salvation, but you never wanted to learn the disciplines of iron. And therefore, you never knew the grace of the iron. You can't hide behind grace with full intention to sin. And so wanting to benefit from salvation without the discipleship in the word, it seems a little incomplete to me. It seems like there's a lot of remediation that will have to be done in the kingdom. But again, it's the word that has to judge that. So we want to be careful. We don't want to judge those who died in ignorance of the Torah, all right? Especially generations that went before us. Like this week's Torah portion, it says Noah was righteous in his generation. There are many righteous people who have died in previous generations who maybe didn't know all about the Torah. They were just unlearned. But remember the the prophecy in the Song of Songs. It's they, they are the Psalm. It says they rejoice on their beds. And again, a bed can symbolize the sleep of death. And so, for the righteous like Noah, they they walked according to what they knew, even in their sleep of death. The word is going to come to them and cause them to rejoice that they have the opportunity to learn more of the rod of iron that they're going to be able to increase what they know. Because that's what it says, you know, the the sword, it divides us under the soul and the spirit. And if you don't get good instruction and good leadership, good teaching, if you don't have somebody to, to help you with that discipline, spirit of the disciplines, then you may never learn to differentiate between the soul, which is your appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect, and the spirit. The Holy Spirit, which is based on it is written. The spirit is does not function according to I think, I feel, I want. The spirit functions according to it is written. And so is it possible we could confuse our appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect with the spirit? Absolutely. It's a discipline. It's a learning process. But even those who have passed on are going to rejoice that the word can still come in there, even in their sleep of death, and begin this remediation process so that they can, again, cast aside the dominance of an untrained animal soul, I think, I feel, I want. And instead, that animal soul will become disciplined of the spirit that functions with, it is written, therefore, I think, I feel, I want what the spirit of truth wants. I no longer worship the beast within. I am a disciple of Yeshua, the living word. So they're they're willing to go through this process of remediation. And, and that's what the living word does. It breaks the pride of man when his beast soul rules over him. So again, Song of Songs, what is this picture of Israel coming up from the wilderness? She's about to cross into her inheritance. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead that occurs so that she can dwell in her inheritance according to the word so that she won't be uprooted from it again. Remember, these are people expert in war. They know how to make war. If they see a serpent coming, they know what to do with a serpent. If they see an Amalekite coming, they know what to do with an Amalekite. And so there, there were be particular ones among the tribes who guard and surround those who are still learning, uh, who aren't so expert in the word of Adonai. They're having to undergo this remediation again, but they're going to be so full of Yeshua's spirit. They're going to be flowing with these rivers that Yeshua promised them during the feast of Sukkot in John 7, 38. He says, come to me and drink. 
I can restore you. Even dealing with these terrors of the night of exile, we can have these rivers running through us. We can be these warriors who have committed ourselves to protect against this flood of evil that is constantly threatening the holiness of the house of Israel. So who are these 60 mighty men? Well, the, the Midrash gives us a clue that it might be a representative number, just like the 144,000 in Revelation. It tells us it's a representative number because it's, it's first fruits representing whatever number that would be. You multiply 144,000 times whatever it takes to get the full field. They're saying that the 60 mighty men, that these are actually the 60 myriads, the 600,000 that came out of Egypt from the age of 20 years and above and below and below. Now you can check on this Exodus 12, 37, Numbers 11, 21, Numbers 1, 46, Exodus 38, 26. But they point out a little anomaly in the way that it's worded uh, in Song of Songs 3, 7. It says 60 warriors around it of the warriors of Israel. But as you read it in the Hebrew, describing them, there is uh, this Hebrew preposition and then the prefix mem. So it's word at, read as from. So you'd say, instead of of the mighty warriors of Israel, you would say from the mighty warriors of Israel. And so that's what they said about these 600,000, that there were descendants of the 600,000 warriors of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Remember, there's 600,000 that come out, but those 600,000, they will father another generation. They will father descendants. So they're saying it's a representative number of these 60 myriads in the wilderness not only of the literal number who came out, but of their descendants. So the implication is that at the time of the greater exodus, there will also be 60 myriads of mighty warriors that are descended from the original 60 myriads of the 12 tribes who came out of Egypt. And so it, it kind of shows you that, again, Jacob's prevailing over the angel. It was a way of prophesying that his descendants would come out of the night of exile. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.